Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing Back in July, I was at a nationwide Quaker gathering and was able to sit down with Lucy Duncan, Director of Friends Relations for AFSC, the American Friends Service Committee. She helped mastermind a presentation on Thursday night that blew me away, bringing together storytelling by three persons vitally linked to the land we variously know as Israel and Palestine. But what initially led me to arrange for Lucy Duncan to be here was especially two Friends Journal articles she wrote, one relating to racism and the other about the growing movement for sanctuary for undocumented workers. Learn more about these and other issues as we sit down with Lucy Duncan. Lucy, I finally got you here for Spirit in Action. Yeah. (laughs) You didn't know it was on my bucket list for my life, did you? (laughs) No. (laughs) Of course, I connect with you a lot via Facebook. You certainly have made a very lively presence there. Your work with the Friends Relations part of American Friends Service Committee has been joyful for me to see. I think there's something that's been raised up there that was uh, it was hidden under a basket before that. And so it's really been great to see you doing that. And specifically, I want to start out with gratitude for your part in last night's plenary session. We are, and all you listeners, I want to let you know, we are at something called the Friends General Conference Gathering, which this year is held at Niagara University in New York Each night we have some kind of special program. Last night, were you the person who brought everyone together to make that happen? Could you explain what that was all about? So last night was a celebration of AFSC's 100th anniversary, which is this year. And we have been, for several years, have been running a program at FGC, Acting in Faith with AFSC, which involves running week-long workshops and afternoon events and other things. And this year with the Centennial, we thought it was going to be really important to offer. We asked FGC if we could host a plenary session, and FGC agreed to celebrate the 100th year. And so we were focusing on AFSC, the principles behind AFSC's work of sort of moving into places that may be unpopular when first people are first working on it, but also to work for peace with justice. I mean, I think that in the history of the organization beginning as a sort of refugee relief organization and an alternative surface organization, that we went to bind the wounds of war and came home wanting to address the root causes. 
when we were discerning what topic or what we might do, Palestine came up as a really important way to demonstrate addressing deep injustice in a deep way. And because AFSC has been working in the region since 1948, we were there offering refugee relief right after the Nakba, after the creation of Israel. And we did that in 48, and we did it for a year at the request of the UN and decided that we had in mind that it was a temporary situation. And when it became clear that these refugees were not going to get to go home from Gaza, we said that we couldn't with integrity continue. And so the UN took over at that point. And so when we were considering this a few years ago, Delete Baum, who was one of the presenters, an Israeli Jew who runs our economic activism program, and Sandra Tamari, who's a Palestinian Quaker, who does a lot of Palestinian rights activism, but also has been really involved in Black Lives Matter and lives in St. Louis and has been involved in Ferguson. A few years ago, the two of them offered a session for the AFSC Corporation in which they told their mutual stories, their stories of the creation of Israel and the Nakba, and then their own political awakening, and then they told stories of activism. And it was an incredible evening. And after that evening of speaking there, the sense of support for our work in Palestine just completely shifted. And there was hesitancy about it and doubts and questions. And after that evening, the corporation as a body was incredibly supportive. And so last night, the vision for it was to sort of draw on that experience of like how powerful it is when you see inside people's experience and you see inside people's experience that are in different social locations in regard to something that it really can open hearts and minds and open change people's ideas. And so I talked to Delete and Sandra and they said, oh, well, we want to invite Saeed too. Saeed Achen, who's a peace and conflict studies professor at at Swarthmore and a Palestinian Quaker. And so we've been talking about what this would be for a while. And three weeks ago, we got together in St. Louis for a weekend <laughs> and sat and told stories for the whole day. And out of that emerged many of the stories that they told last night. For me, it was a manifestation of a vision because I think storytelling, I've seen how stories, when told that way and when people open their hearts to them, can change your perspective in such a deep way. And I've been playing with the idea of how to do that in bigger forums, but also in an ongoing way. And so this was a, a manifestation of that vision. I mean, I can tell some of the stories. I mean, their journey. So Sandra really told her story, the story of her in-laws and being dispossessed from their home in Palestine and then getting connected to AFSC and doing refugee relief themselves and becoming Quaker and the history of that work and then told her story going forward. I don't know. I can tell more stories, but... Actually, you know, I'm going to get a hold of all of them oh, and good. I'm going oh, to good. have them on. That would so, be much better. So all you listeners, just do keep in mind that it's coming, that Sandra and Dala... And Delete, uh-huh. Delete. Uh -huh. I, I have trouble when I saying delete because when I do that on my computer, it's really bad news. <laughs> right, I know, I know. <laughs> and Syed, I'll have him on. And actually, I'll have you as part of that, oh, too, okay, because wonderful. you Great. did such a wonderful job last night introducing folks. And again, we're speaking with Lucy Duncan, who's active with AFSC, the Friends Relations work of that AFSC. AFSC is American Friends Service Committee. I don't want to kill you with letters right now, but I think if you're young of spirit, you should get used to functioning in OMGs and BTWs yes, right. and everything <laughs> and like FOMOs. that. FOMOs, yes. It's been one of my challenges. 
One of the ways, besides Facebook, that I know of your work is by a couple articles that you had recently in Friends Journal. And in March of 2017, you had one that was stumbling forward towards racial justice amongst friends. And then the following month, you had one, The Courageous Many, Quakers and AFSC Work Together for Peace with Justice. And we're going to be drawing on those as part of our discussion now. But again, I'm pretty sure that the FBI, CIA, whatever, has a big dossier on you because of all you posted on Facebook. I'm pretty sure they use that. You know, if there was an accusation that you were guilty of subverting the current paradigm, I'm pretty sure there's sufficient evidence to convict (laughs) you, Lucy. Yeah, that's quite a compliment. I hope so. (laughs) And I think that's a pretty high calling for a person whose, I think, avocation is that of a storyteller. How did you get into storytelling? Let's start from there. So I had a background in theater. My mom was the director of a children's theater, and she actually taught theater and English at Scattergood Friends School. That's how I got connected first with Quakers. And so I thought I wanted to be an actress, so I did a lot of acting when I was growing up and then got diverted into being an elementary school teacher. But I lived in Omaha, and I had my own children's bookstore. And my mom had moved from being the director of a children's theater to being a platform storyteller. She performed as a Russian witch, as Baba Yaga, the Russian witch. In one show, she turned herself into a chicken completely. (laughs) And actually, when I was teaching... Influenced by her, the first time I told a story to my students was I was doing a unit on fish. And she had she told this story called Mr. Fish, which was about a walking catfish. Really, the huge expansion of a joke. Uh, it's about a walking catfish that ends up, that, that in the original version drowns. He doesn't in the version that I tell and that she tells. But I called her and I said, tell me the story. And so I told it to my students and they really, really loved it. And that's how I first started to do it. And when I moved back to Omaha, she and I started to work together. She was getting, she had more demands for her work than she could fill. And so sometimes we would go and do work together and perform together. And sometimes she would say, here, here, I, I'm not available. My daughter is. So, <laughs> so that's how I started. And then she introduced me to some friends of hers who were really interested in telling stories. And we started a storytelling troupe called Five Bright Chicks. And we did all original personal stories for adults. So, and in the course of our time together, we did five shows together. So a lot of what was happening last night sort of draws on that of like really looking at your own spiritual journey stories, but also at how they relate to the world. And so that's how I got involved in it. Was that the credentials that had the American Friends Service Committee hire you? I've told stories. I mean, (laughs) that's true of most of our politicians, too. But theirs don't tend to be true. No. Yeah, I had worked for Friends General Conference for 12 years. I ran the bookstore, and I was then the director of communications, or functionally. They didn't call it that, but that's what I was, functionally. And during the time that I was running the bookstore, we started an e-newsletter. And Martin Kelly, who's now the editor of Friends Journal, who was working with me then, he said, oh, I've done some research. And newsletters that are very personal, e-newses that are very personal and that have a, are in a woman's voice and that really connect personally with the readers, they're more successful. And so I started writing Book Musings, which was a monthly e-news that was, was a personal story that I told and then I connected it to books that we were selling and it was really successful. I still, when I'm here, people say, oh, I miss your Book Musings. I'm like, I've been writing for AFSC for six years. You can read it over there. 
so that was one part of it was that. And then during the course of that time, I had the great privilege of working really closely with Vanessa July and Donna McDaniel as they were working on the book Fit for Freedom, Not for Friendship, Quakers, African Americans, and the Myth of Racial Justice, and learned a lot from them and got much more involved in anti-racist work. And so that's become a really central and primary commitment of mine. So I think those things were part of what credentialed me for the job. I think it's also that I like to organize complicated things <laughs> and figure out systems for how to do stuff. And also got to know a lot of Quakers and cared for the Quaker community and cared for the Quaker community reclaiming its roots as elementally a prophetic faith that was understanding that the spirit and activism are, are one in our faith. And so that was sort of how I ended up at AFSC. And when I started, I interviewed a lot of Quakers and a lot of staff. And what Quakers said is, we want to be involved in your work. We really want to help support this work. We want to do it in substantive ways, not just peripheral ways. And what staff said is, we're smaller. We really need the Quaker community to step up and really help us to get our work done. And so all of what we've built is based on that, those conversations. When you look at the AFSC that you joined, what were the achievements of the AFSC, the, the history of it, that made you say, like, this is where I want to be doing my work? You tend to join with people who you see some integrity, some kind of nurture, some kind of connectedness there that makes them worth hanging around with. What I saw, the FSC was really like connected with Martin Luther King during the civil rights movement and involved in the civil rights movement. And actually, Quakers and AFSC had a real role in introducing him to Gandhi. And so I saw that and the commitment to nonviolence. But I also saw that AFSC would start working on things before other people did. So like very, very early, we were working on gay and lesbian rights. Then there was no question that we were going to support Japanese during the Japanese internment. We were very early on working against the Asian Exclusion Act. And some people don't know, like as early as the 30s, we had people working actively against racism in the organization and had these interracial work camps that traveled in the South where people could only go where black folks could go, where white people could only go where black folks could go. And to this day, people are like, that opened my eyes in such a deep way. So the legacy of being an international NGO and nonprofit that is willing to sort of stand on the edge and really take some huge risks before others are willing to do it. And our work in Palestine is, is a real example of that, really drew me. And I think that the best work we do is at that place. It's not that we, I mean, we do a lot of solidarity work, but we also understand that we need to be working both with perpetrators and victims, and we really need to see you know, the elemental humanity in all of people, and that that's a really important and effective way to work. You know, there's a UCC minister in town, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live, and there's all kinds of good work being done in the community, and there's certainly the Interfaith Hospitality Network has its manifestation as Beacon House, where we live, 
There's refuge house for women who are battered. There's, you know, the food banks, all those kind of things. And Quakers have, at one point or another, been active in all of those. I was talking to him at one point about our involvement with these things. He said to me, he says, that's not where we need you, Quakers. We need you on the cutting edge because we can go places that other religions can't, in spite of the fact that we've got what looks to outsiders like a very cumbersome process. You actually go through spiritual discernment on issues, and you proceed in unity instead of just majority vote or something like that. Does it work the same way at the AFSC level? I mean, you're going out to risk on the cutting edges, and yet you've got all this mass of friends out there, including not only the kind of liberal FGC friends that you and I are, but there's the Friends United meeting, great Quaker folks who are kind of more mainline Christian in some ways, uh, and evangelical friends. How do you proceed in such an ungainly group of representation? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's going to be crazy. And you're right on the cusp of it by doing Friends Relations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, when you started the job six years ago, what color was your hair? It was still gray. Okay. <laughs> when I was a teacher, I, my hair started to turn gray. <laughs> <laughs> a teacher, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that when AFSC was founded, there was a sense that Quakers couldn't come together theologically, like cross the branches of friends, but we could come together around some things that we thought were important to do. And that's really been the basis. And that's also the basis of, like, we have never proselytized. I mean, I think that we've been a very huge witness in the world, and many people know about Quakers because of AFSC, but we're not out in the field trying to make Quakers. We're out in the field, in the world, trying to do social change. And so I think that that's a real big draw. A lot of our work we don't do as a consequence of the Quaker community being in unity, but we have to be in unity amongst ourselves. We have a board of 25 people that's predominantly Quaker, and policy decisions about things like supporting the boycott divestment sanctions movement, about our work in North Korea, about any support, like we recently endorsed the Black Lives Matter platform. All of those have to come to the board to sort of have that organizational backing. And then around that is the corporation, which draws representatives from all the different yearly meetings in the country. Their explicit governance role is to approve the bylaws and they appoint the board and they appoint nominations, which are really actually significant amount of power, right? But they also serve as real connectors and we think of them as agents of connecting us to the social change witness of Quakers and connecting our witness back to Quakers. And so they're real conduits of that communication. We've seen it really be a foundational communications network and that we've deepened our relationship. That's one body that has helped us to really deepen our connection with the greater world of friends. I want to talk to you about a number of the issues that the American Friends Service Committee is connected with. I'm almost tempted to start with the most obscure one because you just mentioned it, North Korea. At one point, I believed that no American except really important basketball players or something could go to North Korea. <laughs> I thought that it was completely closed that way. I had an experience when I was in the Peace Corps in Togo. There happened to be some North Korean projects happening in there. And so a group of us, Peace Corps volunteers and a couple North Koreans, were at the same table in this restaurant, and language was an issue between us. But at a certain point, one of the guys taps us on the shoulder and says, excuse me, you from America? You know, something like that. And it was broken English. It was not easy to understand. 
And we conveyed, yes, we were. And he says, then, you kill babies. Mm -hmm. And he was so clear. Mm -hmm. And the person he said it to was one of the most gentle men Mm -hmm. I've ever seen. It was so ludicrous. But that kind of lack of communication between the cultures was such a problem. What is the AFS he got to do with North Korea? Well, I probably am not the best person to ask about the history of the dust, but I can tell you what we do now. So we do what we do is support farming and farmers to grow their capacity and their yields, and we have introduced certain kinds of technology to them and actively support them. And to us, supporting the farmers is supporting the people in terms of being fed. But the end goal of that program is actually to maintain contact and maintain doors open and some kind of connection so that that could shift the political reality in terms of North Korea. And we have Daniel Kaplan, who works in the U.S. around policy around North Korea. So giving voice to people that aren't, you know, giving an on-the-ground sort of reality check to people's perceptions about North Korea as well. And that it's really to sort of build an, a door opening that can create some other kinds of changes. Which seems so vital right at yeah. this. I mean, yeah, very right. there's yes. this danger of nuclear <laughs> yes. war or something with North Korea. It almost seems prescient. But again, that's part of staying on the cutting edge. And I'll just draw on AFSC, the history. Following World War One. Of course, the Allies were going to help rebuild France. That was the first task set for the American Friends Service Committee. But feeding starving Germans, most of the world wanted to turn their backs on it, and Quakers took a little bit of crap for, or maybe a lot of bit of crap, for trying to help out those evil Germans. Yes, yeah, and, and it was a critical thing. And one of the things that we've done is that we've interacted with what are perceived as pariah states, you know, around the world, out of our principles and out of a sense of, you know, we need to be opening these doors and not closing them down. And I met this guy in Maryland who had helped to feed German children after World War II, and he was Jewish, a Jewish-American guy. And he said that during his time going there and feeding these German children, he didn't say he was Jewish. And later, on an anniversary of that program, he said, I need to come out. (laughs) He called calls himself a Jewish Quaker. I mean, he calls himself a Jaker. And he said for him to do that, to go and feed German children right after the Holocaust and to see the humanity in these German children was incredibly powerful for him and part of his healing to be in that role. I was like, wow, this is an incredible story. And so Korea, that's one of the international programs that's continued. And there's, I understand a bifurcation and how this is managed, the international programs versus the domestic programs. I, I know this organization has been shaken up a lot over the last 20 years. But you know, we've got hard years of history to deal with. Are there any other particular cutting edges in the world outside the U.S.? that we want to talk about. Besides Palestine. Um. <laughs> you wouldn't think after, you know, the, what, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it is, uh, that, you know, the partition of Palestine happened in, in, what, 1947, 
you'd think something would have shaken out by this time. <laughs> there should have been some awareness. The first and second intifada and all that, you'd think that there would be more conscience. Well, I will talk about that a little bit. Often, I mean, I think the advantage of being an international organization is that we can both work internationally and find a role that's appropriate for us as an American NGO in the countries that we're in, and we can work in the U.S. in terms of policy and in being deeply informed about the work on the ground because we're there. And I think that really shifts the way that we can work. Well, I will talk about Palestine, but I'll talk about our work in Burundi, which is very deeply connected with Quakers in the region. The density in Burundi, there are more Quakers per capita in Burundi than anywhere else in the world. They tend to be evangelical Quakers, but when the genocide happened there, there were these peace committees that started. People started to meet Hutus and Tutsis started to meet in secret because they realized that the conflict was created and opposed to their interests. And those peace committees are all over the country. And out of that emerged the Healing and Rebuilding Our Communities, which is um, African Great Lakes Initiative, and with whom we work very closely. And people meet together and have this deep trauma healing that comes out of alternatives to violence program. And people who were perpetrators who, in some cases, killed other people's family members take these workshops and have these deep encounters where they really are healed from that trauma and become friends with them. One man that I met when I was in Burundi talked about how there was a friend of his who had been a friend who nearly beat his wife to death when she was pregnant. And after the genocide, this man came to him and asked for him for his forgiveness. And he said, I said yes, but I didn't really mean it. And he went through the trauma healing process, and he and his wife went back to this man, and there was a really deep healing. He said, he's now my friend. We, we have each other's backs. And that kind of deep change. And AFSC was really instrumental, along with CUNO, in trying to establish that kind of a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the governmental level, and hasn't been successful. We did a lot of work of bringing African Truth and Reconciliation Commissions together in Burundi to give them an example of what that was. And we took government officials from Burundi to South Africa to see the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They've agreed to it legally, but they haven't actually implemented it, I think, because many of them would be implicated in that process. But that's one example of sort of both a governmental intervention and then an on-the-ground intervention that we're really helping. And then our work in Palestine Again, our work there is really connected to the U.S. work that we do in the advocacy. So we have a couple of programs, our Palestinian youth program that works to bring together. So because of the way that Palestinians are separated as Palestinian citizens of Israel, uh, residents of the West Bank and Gaza, they're separated. They're not allowed to marry each other across those lines. There's all these restrictions in terms of their contact. So we actually bring them together. We manage to get permits to bring them together to foster a common identity and common effort. So they've developed freedom of movement campaigns to address this kind of thing and are working together sort of over time to do different actions, but mainly to understand themselves as one group. 
And then we also work in Israel. And our work in Israel is to counter militarism in Israel. So we support conscientious objectors to war and refusers in Israel. And we also do a lot of work around a lot of the militarism is transmitted through education. So like in kindergarten, when an Israeli student is learning how to count, many of the symbols that they see on their worksheets are militaristic symbols. And so this stuff is sort of put into the culture very early so that when it's time for them to conscript to join the military at 18, there's universal conscription in Israel, they're ready. They have the mindset to readily do that. And so we're working to counter that. That's the work that we do in our Israel program. And we're going to get to really the main course for today's interview with Lucy Duncan in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you that you're listening to Spirit in Action, Northern Spirit Radio Production website. You can all say it out there in the audience, northernspiritradio.org, organic, not commercial. (laughs) And on our site, you can listen to all 12 years of our programs for free listening and download there. You can find links to our guests, so you can find a link to Lucy Duncan at the American Friends Service Committee. You can find a link to Friends Journal and her articles that we're going to be talking a little bit about today here. You're going to find links to all of our guests of the past 12 years, and we've really had such a wealth of people doing healing work for the world. There's also a place to post comments, and we need two-way communication in this world. So please post your comments and also contact us. You perhaps know exactly the person we should be talking to, people whose work for healing of the world that we should be highlighting via Spirit in Action. Please contact us for that. Anyway, click the Donate button when you visit and help us make sure that this work persists into the future. Even more important, though, than I'd say supporting Northern Spirit Radio is to support your local community radio station. Our voice reaches so many because there's now some 31 stations nationwide carrying our programs. They need your help, and they're local. They're people you can walk up to and shake hands with, and you can put your wallet and your hands to the service of having a public voice in your town. So please start by supporting them. Lucy Duncan, again here, American Friends Service Committee, Friends Relations is what she works for. You can catch her on Facebook. That's one of the places I find primarily to connect with her. You'll hear from her frequently. I'll let you know if you join her on that, if you follow her. And I specifically wanted to talk, Lucy, about, it was really subject matter of both of your articles in Friends Journal. There's one about racism towards friends. The title of the article was Stumbling Forward Toward Racial Justice Among Friends. And the second one, The Courageous Many Quakers and AFSC Work Together for Peace and Justice. And there's the Sanctuary Movement, which is really a growing part of Friends Witness. And it's not just Friends Witness, there's Sanctuary Cities, but we have our part to play in it. I'm sure there's enough people, including listeners to this program, who say, you know, Quakers are this tiny, minuscule. I'm not even sure what percentage of the population is. I'm pretty sure there's more people who do underwater basket weaving than there are Quakers (laughs) in the USA. So why do we matter? I'd like you to answer that question because we're putting this effort towards moving this society of friends in some direction. Why Quakers? I mean, there's more Presbyterians. Why not talk to them just? Hmm. For me, it's because Quakerism was born from this prophetic impulse and that George Fox's original insight that it's what we understand inwardly that really matters and that there is that spark of the divine in every person. I think that that leads to 
a really deep revolutionary perspective. My friend Victoria Green, who runs an organization called Every Murder is Real, which supports uh, murder victims. Her son was murdered, and she does trauma healing for murder victims. She said, when I first heard of Quakers and the idea of that of God in everyone— and really like walking down the street in my neighborhood and understanding that each of these people that I pass by, these people that have been in some cases really discarded by society, has that of God within them. She said that is a revolutionary idea and that if we really are working to manifest that idea, if we are really doing what's needed to manifest that understanding, that we really will upend the world. And and the original apocalyptic vision of Quakers of really creating heaven on earth is such a vital and important vision. And then manifesting that through our form of worship and through our form of business of trying to really grapple with each other and come to some understanding together, not necessarily to come to the lowest common denominator and only what we can agree to, but to come together around a vision of manifesting heaven on earth or manifesting something really powerful. I think the practice of Quakerism, Quakerism is not something you do on Sunday. It's a way to live your life. And I think that Quakers as a body have this elemental understanding that when enlivened and invigorated and activated, really does matter and really can make a difference in the world and has, has made a huge amount of difference in the world. My own sense is that sometimes we want to take credit for the few people who are doing really amazing things, or we want to take credit for those in our past that are really pushing things forward. And that if we really take our faith seriously, there isn't going to be just a few people that are doing it, that everyone who enters our doors understands this sort of elemental commitment to transform the world and to transform our own hearts, to start with ourselves, and then to work on the world as well. So, Lucy, let's talk about racism. Quakers are pretty well known historically for appearing to be on the right side of racism, Actually, given the fundamental inside a body quality about universal light that Quakers had in the mid-1600s, it's unthinkable that Quakers participated in slavery, but they did. And so the first hundred years, there were some Quakers who participated, and a lot who wouldn't. And yet there became a burning need to deal with that within Quaker circles. This is 100 years before the Civil War, so there's some transformative stuff there. Quakers did make the move to say, okay, we're getting rid of all Quakers. You can't be a Quaker and be a slave owner. That, that's contradiction in our fundamental essence. Involved in Underground Railroad, a number of Quakers were involved in that and you know, were supportive of it. I'm not sure the Underground Railroad would have had a running chance had it not been for Quakers. So, I mean, Quakers definitely got on the right side, and yet, as you mentioned, in Fit for Freedom and Not for Friendship, Quakers still could have deeply racist attitudes, and did, and still do. It's just internalized. Those of us who are white have had a different experience if our skins were of some other darker color or alteration of pigment. So talk about racism amongst Quakers and We'll just, you know, we'll put on our big people boots and try and stand <laughs> up with it as we talk about racism because it, it, there's an inward cringe when I think about racism. Oh, sure, of course. I actually have been thinking about this a bit in terms of, like, we came to the United States fleeing persecution in England and the original Quakers 
And William Penn accepted a land grant of land that wasn't the king's, King George's, to give to him, really. You know, it was belonged to another people. So, yes, we were looking for religious liberty. We were looking for refuge, like so many immigrants in places. But we were also accepting, <laughs> you know, being colonizers in this place. And so I think that even as we migrated here, the original impulse to be here, though, yes, I think Penn treated Indians better, treated the Lenape better than some, but still he was inhabiting land that was already inhabited and serving as a colonizer. And William Penn also was the first slaveholder and the first slave trader in the colonies among the first. And so we don't necessarily tell those stories. We quote Penn about let your life speak and the different things that he said, but we don't we don't always remember that these are part of our legacy, too. We're not special in that way. I mean, this is the legacy of the United States. And I think that our faith and our faith commitments call us to really look at that and to look at the contradictions in our history. Like, we also were opposed to the massacres of Native Americans, but as a compromise, we said we want assimilation, which led to our capitulation and our active participation in the Indian boarding school movement, which was a way to do cultural genocide. And so I think that from our inception, we are, have, been, have been living out this contradiction. And for me, I think that there's a spiritual responsibility. You know, we are the religious society of the friends of truth. <laughs> and there's a spiritual responsibility. And actually, for me, as a white person, some liberation that comes from looking honestly at this legacy and honestly at the tensions within it and owning those tensions and really claiming them and saying, okay, what does this legacy mean? What does it mean that institutions that we built were built on wealth that was built on colonization? And what does that call us to? And it doesn't mean that we weren't in many ways active agents of good, as you just illustrated, but it does mean that if we really want to live our faith, our testimony of integrity calls us to a deeper examination of ourselves and after that examination, as a consequence of that examination, to a much deeper witness to transform what it is that we have built. And of course, we're like so many, we meant well. <laughs> you know, our intentions were good. I mean, our intentions in terms of all of that stuff was good. And we were operating from some of the assumptions of the day. But I think now that we know something else, to look at that really honestly and say, what does it mean for us to claim a faith that originates from its radical impulse and is willing to try to step forward in addressing these contradictions. And in my own journey around this, I still screw up and still operate from assumptions, but I have found that looking at myself and addressing myself and being more honest about who I am and opening my heart to more people that I am so much happier and so much more operate so much more from a sense of relationship with people that if I were operating from the assumptions that I held 10 or 12 years ago, I wouldn't even be able to have such deep relationships with these people. So are you also saying, Lucy, that in some ways you and we are getting better? Are we getting grip on this? I'm certainly aware <laughs> of 10 years, maybe 50 years of Focus on the whole affirmative action stuff that American Friends Service Committee has been participating in, at least since the 70s and maybe in the 60s. 
women and people of color and people with different orientations, sexual or gender orientations. We've made progress in terms of at least numbers that way. How about our attitudes? Are we lagging too badly? I want to just know that there's some hope for us. Oh, of course there's hope. I think that what's happening in the Religious Society of Friends is mirroring the larger political situation where a lot of things have been shifting in society. A lot of changes have happened. And you're witnessing what Reverend William Barber calls the third reconstruction and the backlash against the change and deep shifts. And I think that within the Religious Society of Friends, there's been huge efforts and lots of people opening their eyes and doing their own work. And I think that institutionally, you know, white supremacy is bred into us and baked into our systems, and that in response to that, there's backlash. And that the thing that I am hopeful for is that we can recognize the backlash and break through it. There are really some encouraging developments in terms of, you know, then like just FTC, just in my time, I've been going to FTC for 18 years. So again, that's Friends General Conference gathering, that thing that happens for a certain branch of Quakers in the U.S., Thanks, Mark. And the conversation has changed. So the Bible Half Hour, Regina Renee, who's been doing the Bible Half Hour, is explicitly challenging people around this issue. And it, that's an institution. So within something that's been institutionalized for so long, you have this, this active challenge. And, and there's, you know, European Americans having conversations every day about their racism, as well as a place for people of color. So yeah, I mean, I think there are incredible, courageous efforts and we also have some ways to go. I could talk a lot more about that with you, Lucy, but because our time is going to run out, I do want to talk also about the growing sanctuary movement and what role American Friends Service Committee, what, what's happening in the U.S. in general. I've been real excited. Uh, Twin Cities Friends Meeting is just 75 miles from me, and I'm watching what they're participating in there and getting really excited a little bit scared because I also know that with the national political turmoil that we have right now, when I saw the Occupy camps swept up, cleared out, and you, know, you can be thrown away, I was aware that the government turning against you could turn really nasty for a lot of people. I think a lot of people didn't want to believe that our government would do that. Now I have no doubt that we could all be interned you know, next week by the situation we have here. So talk about what the sanctuary movement is and how we're actually participating and could be participating in it. So the sanctuary movement, the original sanctuary movement happened in the 80s, and it was to offer sanctuary to Central American refugees who are fleeing war, some of which we were responsible for fostering or feeding. And so people originally were being hidden in churches, and then there was a decision to make that really public. And a lot of Quaker meetings were involved in that. And now the sanctuary movement is about offering congregational sanctuary to immigrants who are facing deportation proceedings and who are at risk of being deported back to the to their country. And, and since the Trump administration, now 2.6 million people were deported under the Obama administration. So this isn't really new, these deportations. But since Trump came into office, the anti-immigrant sentiment has increased. And Obama was prioritizing those with criminal records. And Trump has deprioritized all immigrants, which means that any immigrant, undocumented person, is at risk of deportation proceedings. And 
detention has increased by 38% since he's been there. So this isn't hasn't been legislated, but it has been litigated that there are sensitive areas that where immigrants where I where immigration and customs enforcement is less likely to go. And those are churches and schools and hospitals. So when a congregation takes an immigrant into sanctuary, ICE is much less likely to cross the door and and put somebody into detention. And Quakers are doing a lot with this. So Mountain View meeting took in Ingrid Latour, and Albuquerque meeting has taken in an immigrant named Emma and is very involved in coalitions where we aren't necessarily actively housing people, but we are part of the coalition that's supporting somebody in sanctuary. And so what what has been happening is people have been going to their check-ins with ICE, and they've been detained and getting deported. It's For a while, it was like, well, let's see what happens. But in general, many immigrants that show up for their ICE check-ins are getting immediately detained. Um, last week, there was a woman, a woman named Christina, who had accepted sanctuary in Mountain View to go into Mountain View meeting. And uh, she decided in the last 24 hours that she was going to go ahead and go to her, and risk going to her check-in. She went to her check-in. She was immediately detained. She's been deported and is um, actually, I think, with an aunt in Mexico and has been separated from her three young children. So the situation is pretty urgent for immigrants. And though we at AFSC, we participate in this, we have we actually have been supporting many, many congregations in doing this work and have a lot of expertise. And we do it to support the individual immigrants, but we also do it because when when you take somebody into sanctuary, it's really important that you tell their story and that they tell their story, and it changes the political context and the narrative around these immigrants, which are so criminalized and so demonized in, in many cases, by certainly by our government and often by the media. And so we have a dream of having, you know, I think 600 congregations have said that they were willing to take immigrants into sanctuary, and we have a dream of all of them having an immigrant in sanctuary so that the dialogue to provide propel forward the dialogue around this issue so that we can work to really change policy and to, and to interrupt the policy of the sanctuary movement. And we already have 250 people that are interested in that and a huge growing movement. And, and what I've seen is Quakers really, really stepping into this in a really powerful and serious way and taking it really seriously to stand, to stand up and be with immigrants at a time when they're really terrorized by our government. The sanctuary movement in the 1980s included primarily people who were fleeing from Central American countries where the Contras and in El Salvador, people were being driven out by... I was living in Milwaukee at that time, so we had sanctuary people there. And a key part of that was that the people who were sanctuary, they weren't just hidden it wasn't just underground. As a matter of fact, it was referred to often as the Overground Railroad. They spoke in public. They said, here's my story. Here's what happened for me. Is the same kind of thing merging with... Yes, and it's a really important part of it. And um, and actually, AFSC has a really strong media team, and we really support and coach congregations that are taking people into sanctuary on how to do that part of it. Um, it's a really, really critical piece. And one, one activist that we've been working with, Jeanette Vizguera, who's undocumented, and was just recently um, received a stay of deportation. She was in a Unitarian church in Denver. She's been working on this for years and is really a leader in the 
immigrant rights movement. And she was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the United States this year. So that tells you that these people are not just speaking out, they're really changing people's minds and perceptions, and hopefully the political context as well. I have a cute little story, and I think you should add it to your repertoire. Acting as a sanctuary church transforms the members within. It brings up nervousness because you know INS or ICE or whatever, that they can bust in at any time. I happened to be visiting Ann Arbor, Michigan's friends meeting, just the first Sunday following when they actually had a sanctuary family hosted at the meeting house there. And during meeting for worship, you can imagine with 100-plus people sitting in silence during worship, and one guy stood up and said, our room's probably bugged because, you know, INS has to conduct surveillance on us because we're breaking the law and all this. And I feel really bad for those INS agents who are sitting there listening to us, and they can hear people rustling, but we're not saying anything, and they're probably getting <laughs> bored and everything. I thought maybe we should pipe in some Muzak for them or something like that. <laughs> And people laugh so much because they were really nervous Uh because they knew that something could happen. But this is just another way to look at the reality of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So how is the AFSC helping mobilize this movement? So we have Jen Piper, who's our interfaith organizer in Denver. She's one person with the most expertise, I think, in the country around uh, around this issue. There's, a, you know, there's certainly other people that know. And so meetings that are interested and congregations that are interested contact us. And especially if they've been requested to take somebody into sanctuary, we provide advice. We connect them with legal support. Usually people want to talk to a lawyer and find out what kind of legal risk they're going to be undertaking. Um, we provide media support. We really sort of prepare them. There's a lot of huge amount of logistics. And the other thing is to like really talk with people who have done it. So so Mountain View is really experienced and has been actively coaching other congregations and how to get ready. And, and it's really important that you have the space, the appropriate space, but you also have to have, you know, 24-hour people ready to stay in the in the meeting house and in the congregation with people. Often most meetings are not big enough to provide enough people to provide that kind of support. So you really need a coalition to do that. And the coalition serves in many roles. They provide that kind of support. They provide advocacy. They raise money for the immigrant families because you're supporting them while they're in sanctuary. You do actions outside to raise awareness. So there's a whole whole slew of things that you're doing in order to support the family that you've taken in or the individual that you've taken in. And I want to keep in mind, and for all our listeners in particular, Lucy Duncan and I are talking as Quakers, and the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker organized, the staff is only some 1% Quaker, so it's not that there are no Quakers involved in this. And the AFSC is also working with a lot of it's not about just working with Quakers. Oh, no, it's it's about not. working with the world. So these coalitions you're talking about, everyone, you talked about a Unitarian yes, church where yes, this happened. Yes. I assume this is happening across the board. It's across the country, yeah. And we supported, actually, while we've been here, another person was taken into sanctuary in Greensboro, North Carolina. We've been supporting a lot of people across the country as they investigate and then are ready to take people in. And one of the things that happens, you talked about the community, that sense of, 
people coming together to really support a family in crisis and in need, one of the things that happens is that it really transforms the congregation itself. And one of the things that we're expanding beyond congregational sanctuary to this idea of sanctuary everywhere. So an idea that you take that sort of safety and space of refuge and try to make it in lots and lots of places. So we've been working to create sanctuary in the schools, and we've influenced policy in Broward and uh, Miami-Dade public schools so that they will not let ICE through the doors and to support their immigrant students. In fact, the superintendent of the Miami schools was undocumented, and he said, "I over my dead body <laughs> will ICE come through my doors. And we're also thinking about not just immigrants, but also thinking about the school division pipeline and the police presence in the schools and limiting that too. So expanding the idea of sanctuary, not just to support one kind of person, but be beyond that too. So there's lots of information about that on our website and lots of tools for people at afsc.org slash sanctuary everywhere. And there's a huge amount of toolkits and both for congregational sanctuary and beyond. So keep in mind, folks, that link that Lucy Duncan just gave you, afsc.org slash sanctuary everywhere Everywhere. Mm -hmm. is the one you want to go to. I'll have links to that on nordenspiritradio.org. I also have links to the two articles that Lucy Duncan contributed that were in Friends Journal. You can read some more of her. She's a delightful person to get to know. You should just have an evening of storytelling with her. (laughs) She's great. I appreciate both that work. And again, I want to come back to the gratitude I'm sitting with right now for the plenary last night, which Mm, you had such an invaluable mm. role. Your work with AFSC's Friends Relations has really enriched all of us. And I hope it's a seed that helps transform our society, heals people in Palestine and in Korea, everywhere else. There's so many places that need the healing, and you're right at the nexus of it. Thanks so much for doing that and for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. It's been great. I want to leave you listeners with a portion of a song by John McCutcheon, one of my perennial favorites, relevant to the immigration sanctuary movement Lucy Duncan and I were talking about. Remember to check out the AFSC and Friends Journal links on northernspiritradio.org, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here is John McCutcheon and a bit of his song, Immigrant. I am Chinese. I have worked your mills, your yards, your mines. I have laid your railroad lines with my two good hands. I am a Chicano. In your orchards and your fields, I have gathered in the yields for this hungry land. She said, give me your tire, don't you know I'm weary? She said, give me your poor. She's talking to me One of your huddled masses yearning to breathe free And I never have lost sight of what this journey has been for See how she lifts her lamp beside the golden The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. 
You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.